Welcome to the Healthy and Wealthy and Wise podcast with global sales trainer and professional speaker, Lois Kofi. Each week, it is her goal to share inspiration and education for you to be, do, have the best health and wealth and wisdom for your life. Well, all right, all right, all right. Happy Friday, everyone. It's Coach Lois here with another powerful episode. Uh, Every Friday, we do an amazing episode with an amazing guest here on Healthy and Wealthy and Wise. And if you're tuning in live, um, please go ahead and comment below uh, your city, your state, or country where you're tuning in from. We have an amazing guest today, guys, because I I call this Healthy and Wealthy and Wise. Um, And we've had more health guests. We've, We've had more wisdom guests. And we haven't really had a lot of wealth creation type conversations specific to what our guest is going to be talking about with us today. So if you see value in this show, as always, I'd like to say whether you're watching live or replay, please hit the share button. Um, there's a lot of people out there looking for this wisdom and this knowledge today, and you just might be able to inspire and encourage someone by hitting the share button today. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our amazing guest today. And actually, it's really cool because Jerry also is the first guest that I ever have had reach out that wanted to be on my show that I didn't already have some kind of a relationship and rapport. And I was quickly impressed by him. He's had such a great journey. He's the founder and owner of his own um, Wealth Dynamics, and he's licensed in helping you create wealth. He's got endorsed by Dave Ramsey in about eight different territories for investing across the U.S. and being very successful in helping his clients build wealth. Also, with working with the likes of Grant Cardone. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so, so excited to hear more about that story. And he's also a part of the Forbes um, Council. So I'm going to go ahead and, and turn over to you, Jerry. Please share with us more about your journey and your story. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lois. It's great to be on today. It's good to, uh, to communicate and talk with everybody. Um, so yeah, definitely all of all of the things you said. Uh, so what I do is I help um, families, individuals, entrepreneurs, um, you know, become financially educated. Um, I help them build wealth, and I, I really focus on um, helping them simplify their finances so that they can e- economically navigate that landscape with more certainty. And um, my company, we've been in business um, uh, almost ten years now, and so you know, from the very beginning, starting out, I've I've um, been able to grow the company to what it is today um, and had a lot of fun on the way. But yeah, we've worked with Dave Ramsey in the past. We've worked with Grant Cardone. uh, We work with Forbes. uh, And it's just been a a, a very fun time of of helping people with that, you know, meeting those people, uh, working with some of those connections. That is so amazing. And I I know you have a powerful story. Um, I know you you lost your mom, right, when she was just 60 years old. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that had a huge impact on why you do what you do, right? Yeah, that was a big part. Um, I mean, really, for for what I do in the financial world, especially when I started out, I was kind of a mainstream financial advisor is what I would call it. Um, and so it was kind of the message of, you know, get out of debt and save and invest. And that way, when you're 60, you can retire and you can enjoy all of this work that you've put in. Um, so I was, I was, my mom was my first client. So I got licensed and I was, you know, green eyed, bushy tailed, um, she was the first one willing to sit down with me and, 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 you know, work with me on, on investments. And so, uh, when she turned 60, um, that was the year, right? That's the year we're supposed to be able to start mm-hmm. enjoying all of the fruits of our labor. And mm-hmm. so she was diagnosed with, um, stage four colon cancer and, and passed away six months later. Wow. So for me at the time I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. 
And, um, you know, as a, as a, as a young guy, like that was devastating, but as a professional, that was devastating as well because the plan, right. didn't work the wait till you're 60. I watched that unfold and unravel with my mom. And, um, that really, you know, was, uh, it was a, an important and in a very powerful moment for me because it caused me to, um, a do a lot of growing up very fast, but B to look at things and inspect and ask, is this really the right way? And, mm. and that's kind of where my, um, evolution, if you want to call it that as a financial professional began. Wow. That's amazing. Um, it, it, I hear that often, you know, that why go and live, you know, your life at the end, you, you don't know if you're going to have that life at the end. Um, so I love that message for my healthy and wealthy and wise community, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners in their forties, fifties, we have, we have twenties and thirties as well, but maybe you can share a little bit in, in this, this new normal. Um, how have you worked differently in the pandemic versus pre-pandemic? Have you seen any changes, especially with sales, maybe down, maybe they have more debt accumulation. Um, I know you talk a lot about being able to still have money and pay down your debt. So what have you seen shift in the last year? Yeah. So we're, we're about one year uh, away from when this all started, right? Around March last year was when I remember mm -hmm. seeing like businesses closing down and, and, uh, you know, stay at home orders happening. So, um, if I think back to that and, and one of my messages has always been solvency. Um, I define mm -hmm. solvency as earn more than you spend, own more than you owe and make sure that your rewards are greater than your risks. And, um, at this time last year, much of America was not solvent. They were insolvent. A lot of the business owners had mm. one month or less of reserves. Um, the average family had less than $1,000 saved up in, in their accounts. So insolvency already existed. And there's this concept of the bubble, right? The bubble inflates and then something pops it. Um, you know, for the insolvency bubble in America, it was, it was COVID that popped it. The pandemic happened and people just were not prepared. And so from the business landscape, what I could see was uh, I could see a lot of people, you know, initially having that realization of like, oh, shoot, we don't have reserves saved up. We don't have money to cover our debts. We don't have, uh, you know, for me, I like to have six months minimum at all times that just is is there. And I put it in my life insurance, but in, in cash equivalents. So that was a, a problem that we saw. And so immediately for us, we got in and started really preaching solvency. Like we need to get your, if you're not winning right now, like we need to get you above water. You need to get your, your income back up over your expenses. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's been a, a, a stride that they had to take. Um, some of us had to go online. Some of us had to shut things down for a couple of months. And I think at this point, one way or another, most of us have figured out how, how we can keep going, how our businesses can still work, how we can keep selling. So that was really kind of what I saw. And so we really worked with clients on, um, you know, the solvency piece and then also the, the sales to value, right? Wealth can't happen without income. So if my mm -hmm. income dips and I'm used to earning in a certain way, um, mm -hmm. I've got to be willing to adapt. I've got to be willing to look at how can I keep that going? And, um, so we broke down this thing called the triangle of income. Okay, the triangle mm -hmm. of income, if you think of three points on a triangle, um, it's knowledge, value, exchange. And regardless of what my business was or what I had been doing, if I'm if what I was doing doesn't earn income now, I've got to go back to that triangle and look at where can I get unique knowledge that makes me valuable and exchange that with others in whatever field, 
And that's always how income starts. And so, you know, with that being said, there's, there's in the economy, there's inflationary periods and deflationary periods. Inflation means prices go very high and money is easy and flowing. Deflation, things kind of start to constrict. And that really happened last year. In deflation, you have to lead with delivery and then the revenue follows. In inflation, you can lead with sales and revenue and, and delivery follows. But we really worked with our clients on, okay, deliver, bring value, free samples, free posts, free everything. Just get people at your door, get mm -hmm. them to win with your product and that revenue will show up and then we can work on the solvency piece. Wow. I love that. I'm taking copious notes, guys. I hope you guys are as well. In fact, don't forget, um, the show is only 30 minutes long. So if anybody has questions along the way, we have um, my good friend Adil here is in Pakistan. So we got got a global community here for you, Jerry. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome, Adil. And, and I know that when people are I, I think most of us learned our, our quote unquote wealth building from our parents and childhood, right? Which mm. most of us didn't get raised by financial advisors. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one thing that I've seen, and I'd love for you, I'm sure you talk about this with your clients. You know, there's a lot of people that went to a scarcity mindset place mm -hmm. last year. So sometimes, and I'm as a sales trainer, I see this and I get it because I've been there, done that. When we go to that scarcity place, it's it's harder to bring value, right? Or or we we maybe don't believe in ourselves. All of a sudden, we we start like becoming really frugal with our time uh, and and money, um, or we just spin our wheels and work twenty four seven and don't get anywhere because we're we're kind of vibrating at that lower scarcity level. If that makes sense, I hope I'm making sense. Totally. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any advice um, to to kind of shift those mindsets, you know, I've read the book, The Compound Effect also. Mm -hmm. um, great book that talks about those daily habits that define your future. So what do you tell your clients that are maybe kind of like in that scarcity mode? Yeah. So first, I, I understand that. I can relate to that. And, and that's how I grew up. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, when we were, I think I was eight years old, this all happened in one summer. At eight years old, we lost our house, the car got repoed, and my parents got divorced. Um, <laughs> all all over the topic of finances, right? So I was ruined on money by the time I was 17, 18 years old. I was in scarcity mindset 100%. Um, you know, my mom and dad were divorced. They had three kids. They were poverty le level income. I was a, a food stamps kid, free lunch, food bank, all of that. Mm -hmm. So I understand it. When I started in business, <clears throat> my dad had never made more than 50 grand. That was my milestone. I was like, if I could just make $50,000, life would be gravy. And that I didn't make that number for three or four years because for me, that was such a big number. Mm -hmm. I couldn't confront it because it was like 50,000. I'm out earning my dad and I'm only 21 years old. That's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And so with scarcity mindset, it's very insidious because we typically do it out of protection. We mm -hmm. see danger, we see fear, we see something that's a lower emotion level. So we go inward and we go into scarcity and we look at how can we save, how can we conserve, excuse me, how can we conserve? How can we restrict? <clears throat> so the thing that I teach is, again, there's knowledge value exchange. Mm -hmm. Those have to be outward. So I cannot have exchange with myself. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's potentially a lot of mindset that you can go into on that. But for me, I'm a very common sense guy. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter how emotionally attached I am to it. It doesn't work. So I cannot factually make money by exchanging with myself. That violates all of the laws of economy. 
So it just isn't something that's going to win. And so I have to look at that. And regardless of how I feel in my emotional state, I have to realize that's, it's the equivalent of saying, I want to lose weight. I'm going to eat four boxes of donuts every day. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. So that's really where, where I would focus on is the exchange has to be outward. And because I can really realize it's a black and white thing, if I'm exchanging inward, it's not going to work. If I'm exchanging outward, it is going to work. I can look at what might be a tough emotional time that might be hard for me to um, delve out of. And I can kind of slap myself upside the head and say, hey, wake up. I'm not going to I'm not going to win if I'm exchanging with myself. Um, I'm not Enron. I can't just build my books up from the inside and make it all look good. So that really is my method. And, and that's how I handle it too. Cause even at my level and, and maybe even at your level, you still have the temptation to go into the scarcity mindset of like, what happens if this goes wrong? What happens if these people don't show up? What happens if I don't earn enough to pay this? And you just have to really realize and snap yourself out of that and say, okay, good. I need to go exchange with other people. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. There's a concept called giver's gain. Um, being able to have that energy flow with people is so important. Um, I love that. Uh, and and for sure, uh, looks like we have a question here. So I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna bring that up here in a second. I think that's one of the reasons, though. That's why I love having guests like you on to remind us that no one succeeds alone. I have a coach, <laughs> a therapist, two virtual assistants. Like I had I. I actually invested way more money last year than I had ever before because I, I wanted to be able to um, not be spread too thin. I was coming from an abundant place and I wanted to help more people, give more value, be more valuable. And that really actually exploded my income last year. And having that accountability person like yourself um, or myself is all of the difference in helping keep us honest. Like you said, we can slap ourselves, um, but sometimes we need friends and other people like you to slap us as well. Yeah. Um, so Sean, who's tuning in live from the beach in Hastings, Minnesota, I'm pretty sure there's not a beach there. He's, uh, he's being funny. Um, but he <laughs> says when, if ever has a majority of Americans had these needed reserves to survive at least a couple months, do you know any of the stats like on how many people have these six months reserves or do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Not many. I, I don't think that people have really been in that position for a number of decades now. Um, and it has to do with with credit, right? So if you look around the 1950s, 1960s, consumer credit started becoming available. Um, before then, it was unheard of. So when consumer credit started becoming available, um, you know, people started relying on that. In the 70s and 80s, savings account interest rates started to fall. So we kind of had this sandwich of consumer credit coming in and then savings uh, uh, interest rates being very low, and it really disincentivized people to save money. So I don't have a stat on how many percentage do have that. I would venture to guess probably only 20, if that, maybe 10% of the population actually is financially solvent. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that would include having the six months in reserves. Isn't that interesting? Because I used to sell real estate way back in the day, and they always said, you're, you know, you're your home is the best investment. You know, it's when it, your credit score was was a part of your identity, which I think a lot of people struggle with, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what do you think? This is a, a kind of a big question that we may not have enough time to talk about, but what do you think is like the best investment right now? Yeah, so I, I have a different philosophy than most. So keep in mind, I was a financial advisor. So I sold stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, and I did that as, as a profession, and I was very good at that. Um, the way that I relate that it's kind of like working in a restaurant 
and then seeing that they don't clean the kitchen and then never <laughs> eating there again. And, and that was my experience. So um, personally, I do a lot of investing in, um, I do gold and silver, I do life insurance, and then I do a lot of private lending on real estate. Um, okay. A lot of people are used to buying real estate where you acquire the property. I prefer to be the bank. So I'm the mortgage on these properties and, and I just get paid every month and there's no tenants. Nobody's going to call me because the mm. toilet broke. Um, if the rent didn't come in, oh, well, they still have to pay the, the mortgage next month. So that's, that's what uh, I do. That is cool. I have to ask, what do you think about the whole crypto Bitcoin craze? It's interesting. I think, um, so it's definitely a speculation. Um, so it's not an investment. It's a speculation, something we buy and hope it's going to go up in value. And, and so far it has. Um, I think in the future, we probably will use some form of blockchain, um, which is the underlying technology behind Bitcoin. Um, I do not think it's a, a viable get rich quick. And a lot of people truly believe that they think if they own Bitcoin, they're going to be wealthy. Um, honestly, we missed the boat for that. The, just like any asset, if I was going to become a millionaire off of Bitcoin, I would have had to buy it at the very beginning. Now, mm -hmm. if I put $50,000 into a Bitcoin and it triples, I've only got 150 grand. Um, tripling is good, but 150,000 definitely is not wealthy. So, um, I think there's some perspective to it. It does not violate or, or make, um, you know, vain the fact that we still have to earn, save and invest. Um, mm -hmm. so I think a lot of people are going to have an awakening and realizing it's not a shortcut. It's probably going to be a great technology, but just like the internet, the internet didn't make life hundred percent effort free. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I like that perspective. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, we have a guest who has a question and hey, it's Corinne. She's my beautiful sister-in-law in Canada and she actually grew up in Europe and Africa. So I love her question. Is it possible to stop living on credit in some parts of the world? It's easier to achieve than in America. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. So again, back in my Dave Ramsey days, um, debt was evil, right? So we we never use credit. We we get rid of all the credit cards. We'd actually cut them up with clients. So I went from that to then looking more at like, okay, that. I get that. And that's a good consumer behavior. I had to do that to get off of the addiction to credit and spending and all of that. But when I got to a point where I was stable, I started looking at what do the top 1% of wealth actually do? They do use credit. However, they use it through corporations. And so my rule with credit is um, it never goes on my personal financial statement. And I'm never personally the guarantor on it. So it's always going to be credit that's being given to a corporation or an entity of mine. And it's never going to be guaranteed by me personally so that it stays off my balance sheet and off of my financial statements. And it shields me from the risk if anything ever happens with that credit. So I say that to add that we still can and, and should use credit appropriately. As a consumer, though, um, the way to stop using credit is to stop using credit, right? And, and I know that sounds overly simple, but we actually do have to stop using it. Um, a lot of Americans, we have, you know, an average of ten dollars to $15,000 per family in credit card debt, um, mm -hmm. which means that we're, we're spending more than we earn and we're charging it on credit cards, mm -hmm. right? So if I want to stop that behavior, I first got to stop charging it because I can pay off my debt and that's great. But if I keep doing the thing that caused the debt, which is charging it on credit cards, then it's just going to yeah. build back up again. So I kind of have to stop that. I have to damn that off just like a week and then go after the, the deficit, the balance and pay that down. Um, and then once it's done really having reserves and that's much, much easier to do when there's not a 300 or 500 or $700 a month debt payment, um, mm -hmm. going out every month, instead I can save that income and, and build up solvency. 
Well, you, you touch on something and Sean, I see your question. I w- I'm going to get to that one after I ask and, and have just a, a brief conversation about how does someone, maybe they, they could be one of those families that you said that have the 10 to 15 K or maybe they accumulated a lot more debt in the pandemic because their sales were down, what have you. How does someone pay down debt while making money and, and wanting to be more solvent? Is there a, a couple of tips or tricks that you haven't maybe covered that could benefit our audience today? Yes. Good question. So, um, I, so I, I am a big, big studier of banks. When I, when I got out of the, um, mainstream financial advising, I really started looking into, you know, like the, the movie, the big short, if anyone's ever seen that, it raises some questions. You're like, all right, so there's, this is not Skittles and rainbows. There are people in this industry that don't have good intentions. So I, I looked at that and I started studying banks. And one of the things that I realized is, um, a banks are, banks are never lending us their money. So there's something called fractional reserve lending. Fractional reserve lending means when I, as a consumer deposit money into a bank, they, up until last year, they only had to keep 10% of my deposits in reserves. The other 90% of my deposits, they could loan out. And so that's what banks do. They loan my money out to other people. So in a very real way, I could deposit my money in a bank. That bank would then loan my money to Lois for a car loan, for example, right? And so now they're making money off of my money by loaning it to Lois. They're paying me 0.05% for my funds. So that's the first thing to realize. Banks never loan out their own money. All of the money they've ever given you is not actually theirs. It's other people's deposits. B, with that being said, banks don't care about interest rate. Lots of us think they do because everything is an APR and a percentage. They actually care about what any business cares about, which is profit, cash flow, and that's measured in dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So we we have this thing called interest where we look at interest rates and we get very caught up in them. The banks don't care at all. They literally use interest rates as a, as a um, behavior altering factor, as a way to manipulate our behavior and and as a red herring. And so what happens is they'll loan us you know, uh, let's say a mortgage, $300,000 at what? 3%. We think 3%, that's low. I'm going to get yeah. that loan. The reason why is the banks know it's secured by an asset, a house. And so they don't mind if we keep the debt because they, they don't want the interest. They want the monthly payment. They're going to get $2,000 a month from you for the rest of your 30-year mortgage. And they want that. And so they're willing to give you a lower interest rate to in, in basically incentivize you to pay that back very slowly so they get the maximum dollar, right? Mm. Now, think about a credit card. Credit card is 15%, 20%. Why is that? Well, a, it's unsecured. So if you, do, if you default, they get nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to charge you a high interest rate because they want you to pay it back. So they're going to have you paying it back, paying it back, paying it back so that their risk goes down. But they're still getting a $300 a month payment, $400 a month payment. So they're worried about the dollars. We're worried about the percentages. So that's really the big difference between like what banks are doing and what we're doing as consumers. Um, and so in order to break free of that goal, if I'm trying to pay off debt, I have to realize a couple of those truths. And then I also have to really understand what got me in debt in the first place. Debt's the symptom, not the reason. Okay, the mm-hmm. symptom was anytime I've ever had debt, the symptom was my credit card maxed out and I'm paying an interest and I have these payments and my, my balances are rising. So I automatically get pulled into that and I start behaving the way the banks want me to. Let me pay it off. Let me start working on it. But the root was the only time I've ever borrowed money and it's happened multiple times was because I didn't have it in the first place. 
That's the only reason anyone ever borrows money. When we have money, we don't borrow. It's only when we don't have money do we borrow from other people. So for me to really break out of that cycle, I have to solve the first part of the equation, which is not having money. Because if I do the debt snowball and pay off all of my debt aggressively, that's great and it feels good, but I get done and I'm back on square one of not having money. And I end up right back in debt again because I didn't solve the root reason why it started in the first place. So there, there are ways around that. Um, and I don't, we've only got a couple of minutes. I want to just give you the short story of this. Um, so I use life insurance to pay off debt. If you structure life insurance correctly, you can put money into it. You can borrow against it tax-free. Borrow against it. That life insurance that you're borrowing against is still paying me 3 to 5% per year in interest. And when I'm borrowing, it's only costing me 1% to 2% in interest. So I'm having a positive 1% to 2% between what I'm earning and what it's costing me every single time I take a loan out. So what I do is I'll build up my life insurance. And as soon as I have enough in there to pay off my smallest debt, I borrow against the policy, I wipe out the debt, whatever that minimum payment used to be, I pay that back policy so that I can pay myself back and build my reserves again. And then I go after the next one. And I just do that by balance size. It's very similar to the Dave Ramsey plan, except we're putting it in the life insurance. And as a byproduct of that, by the time I pay off all of the debt, my life is still growing at 5%. So I pay it all off and I'm solvent because I have all of this money that grew while I paid off my debt. That's amazing. That's, that's mind blowing. <laughs> Very different perspective. So, and I know you have a free gift here. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I, I did have, uh, someone else had a question. What do you think of rich dad, poor dad, the good debt, bad debt thought process? Yeah. So while I understand that it's a little bit misconstrued in the sense that there money is amoral, so it can't be good or bad. Um, there's, there's more behavior, right? So there's good behavior or bad behavior with debt. There's no such thing as a good debt or a bad debt. Um, debt doesn't die and go to heaven or hell. It's just, it's a, it's a concept that we came up with, you know, in this period of, of humanity. So, um, I think just like with anything, I can behave intelligently with something where it benefits my future, or I can behave unintelligently where it hinders my future. And that can be with debt, that can be with income, that can be with investments, that can be with food. It really is, it, it applies to everything. I love that. Yeah, you keep reminding me of the book. If you guys haven't read it, read The Compound Effect. It's, the, it's a great example of healthy and wealthy and wise concepts. For sure. Um, we don't have any other questions from from the audience. Is there anything else before we wrap it up that you really want to share with our audience today? Yeah, so I would say. Oops, hold on a second. I think we lost you. Your audio disappeared. I'm yeah, you're, there you go. Yep. <laughs> cool. So um, that's a good question. There are really two things that I would say. it, And the first one stems from the fact that um, for me and you, as my experience has been, none of us, as you even said, none of us has really have really been taught about money. It's not a topic that was taught to us in school. Um, we go to college and there's some value in college. We have to realize that the college professor is not working there because he's financially independent. So even when we learn it from those people, we're not learning successful stuff. We're learning theories. And so when it comes to money, um, we can kind of try to. Oop, you're muted again. I don't know why that keeps happening. That's odd. All right. I should be back now. 
Yep, you're back. <laughs> so, so we can really turn money into this big, bad, confusing thing. And I really like to go back to money is simple. Okay, money is simple. At the end of the day, all of it's basic math. Can I add? Can I subtract? Can I multiply? Can I divide? I don't even have to know how to do those things because I have a calculator on me at all times. So I just need to know what the concepts are. That's all money is. The only times it gets confusing is because of vocabulary. Okay, vocabulary was created by the intelligent in order to keep the less educated where they're at so that the intelligent with money can stay up where they're at. So they make up words and terms that sound more difficult than they are so that the average person says, I don't understand, I need a professional. If you mm. keep that in mind, everything can be understood as long as you, you remember, remember it's basic math and it's just vocabulary and I can go look up the definitions. So wow. that's the very first thing. Now, the second thing that I would say is doing things in the right sequence. Okay, I cannot overstress that. Doing things in the right sequence. Everything has a right sequence and a wrong sequence. With finances, we often get loaded up with things in different phases of our lives. If you think about I get out of, 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 of high school, I get a car loan and a student loan. Not because it was the right timing. That's just what I was told I should do, and so I did it. Then I get a credit card, and then I get the 401k, and then I get the mortgage, and I just kind of start loading up on these financial products none of them in the right sequence. And what happens is confusion. We get all these random financial things. And at some point in our life, we look at it and we say, wow, this is a mess. It's unorganized. I can't keep up with it. This is not helping. And so the way to proactively solve that is to understand when you should have these things, in what order you should have them, why you should have them, and what they should be doing. And if you do all of that in the right sequence, it avoids the confusion and it actually gives you momentum rather than slowing you down the more you do. Wow, you make it sound so simple, so logical. That's it is. It, it very is. It's a simple thing. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of people are, are emotional about money, you know, because of, again, probably that, that childhood stuff that we all grew up with and the lack of awareness and focus on it. What you focus on expands. I can't thank you enough for being here today. And why don't you tell, um, I have your link. It's jerryfetta.com forward slash free hyphen chapter. Can you tell us a little bit more about what they're going to get with that yes. free chapter? So last year I wrote my second book. This is called Blueprint of Financial Freedom. And um, this book has been in me. It took me about two weeks to write it. Um, and so this basically, like I'd mentioned just now about correct sequence, this gives you the correct sequence of finances. It tells you what you should do, when you should do it, how you should do it, um, how long you should do it for in the right order. So on that link, there's a free chapter to that book that kind of gives you an introduction to getting started on that path. Um, and the great thing is, is this, this basically, like my goal is to get, get everyone I work with financially independent. And that means that they have passive income that exceeds their savings, expenses, and taxes. That's the end goal. So if you think of that as kind of like the, the progressive, you know, increase of, of progress, anyone can start, right? So if I'm broke, if I have, if I'm negative, like I have less money than I owe more than I own and I have no income. I can still get started with the information in the book. If I'm savvy and I've been doing this a while, I can still get started and just finding where I'm at in the book and continuing on from there. So I would recommend get that. Um, the link again is jerryfetta.com forward slash free chapter um, and, and uh, enjoy it. It definitely is some financial clarity to say the least. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I do have one more final question that I ask of all of my guests, but let me make just one quick announcement to my community. Thank you guys so much again. If you saw value in this, please hit the share button. Uh, we got a lot of wisdom today that we want to share with other people who maybe, especially if they're hurting financially, we want to help the, clear the cobwebs and help them move forward 
with his great advice today. Also, um, many of you guys know that I love teaching about list building to freedom, how to create money from your email list. I'm going to be doing a class on that for free, a masterclass on March 16th. Go to loiskofi.com forward slash freedom, which is a great name, what we're talking about today. Um, I'd love to help you guys learn and earn creating that freedom. And again, you can talk to Jerry about what to do with that money when you get it. So final question for you, Jerry, because the title of my podcast has a lot of meaning for me. When you hear the phrase healthy and wealthy and wise, what does it mean for you? Yeah. So for me, that means um, potential, right? I think all of us are, are mind, body, spirit, right? So um, I think healthy, wealthy, and wise encompasses all three of those. And if I, if I continue progressing and continue progressing and reaching for my potential, um, to me, I think of that, you know, I'll get to that point in, in my life. And I think it's going to happen in thresholds where every time I reach a new threshold of that in pursuit of what I can ultimately be in those three areas. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, guys. Tune in next Friday. We have another amazing guest, Nicole Magic. She calls herself the Alchemist Coach. Very spiritual, helping you remove those limiting beliefs and helping you earn more money and be healthy and wealthy and wise as a result. So tune in next Friday. Bring friends. We'd love to build this community here at Healthy and Wealthy and Wise. And until next time, here's to your best health, your best wealth, and your best wisdom. Bye-bye for now. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe, refer a friend, and please drop me a rating or a review. If you do that, I'll reward you with a free 20-minute free coaching session on crafting your journey to your best self. Reach out to me at lois at loiskofi.com to claim your 20-minute slot. Until next time, be healthy, wealthy, and wise.